open our Bibles this morning to the book of Philippians chapter number 4. Philippians chapter number 4. These last few weeks we have been considering the topic of missions and specifically the church's role in missions. And when I say the church's role, I don't, of course, mean the building. But we as a body of believers who make up the church who make up Philadelphia Baptist Church, what is our role collectively, corporately, as a body? Because missions is the mission of the church. We have been commanded to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. We have been commanded to teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. That was Jesus' words. It's our duty, it's our privilege to get the gospel to everyone in the world that we can. But we cannot be everywhere at once. We wish we could be other places. We wish we could literally clone ourselves and do much more that way. But the fact is, you and I, we can only be in one place at a time. So to fulfill the commission to go into all the world, God calls certain people to leave where they are and go somewhere else to share the gospel and establish New Testament churches by make, and making disciples. We call those people in our modern vernacular missionaries. They've been sent out on a mission to preach the gospel. Now, what is the church's role in that process? We saw several weeks ago that the church supplies the missionaries. As the church fulfills its responsibility right here to go and preach the gospel here, people are saved, disciples are made, and people are given the opportunity to learn and to grow. And the Lord works through the local church then to supply the workforce needed to reach the world. And as we do that, God calls some to this special ministry of missions. And that's where the church's next responsibility comes into play. The church not only supplies the missionaries, but the church sends the missionaries. It's not the mission board. It's not a Bible college or any other outside organization. It is the responsibility of the local church to send the missionaries. The Lord works through the local church, to confirm his call on the individual's life, and the church sends them away. But even after that, the church plays a vital role in continuing to provide accountability. And as we'll see today, the church's final role in missions is to support the missionaries. Missionary work is hard. Some of you have have done mission work, you know what it is to leave your home, to go to a foreign country, to learn a foreign language, to uh, learn a foreign culture, and you understand firsthand from my own experience how difficult that can be. Even with all of our modern technology today, it's still a very, very difficult calling. And you know what else about missions? It's expensive. It's expensive. It costs money to travel, it costs money to live overseas, and often um, in many places it costs more 
because of different things like exchange rates and uh, other things that are necessary to exist in, in, uh, in a foreign country. The missionary then needs help from God's people if they're going to accomplish God's work. You see this pattern all throughout the New Testament. Even people like the Apostle Paul, wasn't, he was not a lone ranger. He didn't go out there on his own and just plow ahead on his own as a single individual. He worked with a team and he had a team of churches behind him supporting him. And it was as God's people worked together that the gospel was spread all over the world. And so it is today that we need to be supporting missionaries every way that we can. They need material support in the form of finances and physical resources. They need spiritual support in the form of regular fervent prayer and encouragement through communication and responsiveness. I'm a believer in giving to missions. I believe we should give sacrificially to support the work of missions all over the world. Not because, simply because we have a soft spot for the missionary, but because we truly believe in the work of missions. It's sometimes been true that churches who had great missions programs actually just had good missionary programs. What I mean by that is that the church was really good at supporting individuals that, that they had an emotional connection to, but they didn't actually have a great burden for reaching the world with the lost. Our focus must be what God's focus was, which was to seek and to save that which is lost. And so we support the missionary because we support missions and God's program and God's plan. We should give of our money, even if that means making do with less and trusting that God will supply what we need. We should give of our time and energy, lifting up missionaries in prayer, staying in contact with them, taking opportunities to go above and beyond and responding to their needs. And you know, for those who support missionaries, there is a special promise that God gives. It's found here in Philippians chapter 4 and verse number 19. The Apostle Paul wrote, But my God shall supply all your need according to His riches and glory by Christ Jesus. It is true that God takes care of the grass of the field and the birds of the air, and so we don't have any need to worry about whether God will take care of us. But this particular verse was actually given in the context of supporting missions. Paul was commending the church at Philippi for how they were some of the only people at certain times actually gave to meet his needs to help him in the work of the ministry that he was doing. Even though they were not rich by any stretch of the imagination, they gave and to them he said, verse 19, just know that God will supply your needs. You have sacrificed and you have given to support the work of the ministry and missions and evangelization and getting the gospel out all over the world. God will take care of you in return. Now turn with me over to Acts chapter 17 for a moment. Today I want to propose to you this, that it is our privilege and our responsibility 
to support missionaries financially and spiritually. And I want to look with you at, the, at an example in, in Paul and in the pattern of his ministry of how God used churches and individuals to support him along the way. And Paul acknowledged that because of the believer's support of him, God would reward them. Have you ever wondered as you uh, read through the New Testament, how did Paul afford to do what he did? You ever think about that? I mean, you read about him getting on these boats and traveling to these different places and staying here for these weeks and months and sometimes years on end. And how did he afford it? I think about those kinds of things. You know, it's the same way in, in Paul's day. Transportation wasn't free. You had to pay somebody to ride on that boat or rent a camel. I don't know if they had, you know, rent a camel services, how that worked. But food wasn't free. And by that, he was going to stay in a hotel of sorts. You know, he was going to have to pay rent. I mean, there were a lot of expenses that he incurred just personally. How did he pay for it? Was he independently wealthy? You know, did he make his money the old-fashioned way, inheriting it all? Did he have a trust fund that he could pull from? Well, not in the traditional sense. There were various ways that we know that he was able to support himself through the ministry as he, as he uh, did the work of the ministry. We know that he was not independently wealthy because there were times where he had to work for his living while preaching and establishing a church. Acts chapter 18 tells us about one of those times. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and came to Corinth and found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, lately come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because that Claudius had commanded all Jews to depart from Rome, and came unto them, and because he was of the same craft, he abode with them and wrought, for by their occupation they were tent makers. So Paul came into the town of Corinth and he met up with this couple, Aquila and Priscilla. And they stayed, as best as we can tell from the timeline, they stayed in Corinth for about a year and a half. And during that time, the three of them started a business. They worked together making tents. Notice it says in verse 3, He abode with them and wrought. The word wrought there, he worked. By trade, Paul was a tent maker. Now in Jewish culture, in Jesus' day, every Jewish young boy was taught a trade. Frequently it was the father's trade. But they had this really strange philosophy. They believed if you didn't teach a boy to work, you raised a thief. Isn't that odd? They had it right, didn't they? Jesus, or not Jesus, the Apostle Paul, he would later say that if a man will not work, the same should not eat. Work is good, by the way. Work is not a punishment. Even before sin, man had a job to do. Just because of sin, it became a lot harder. But Paul... Because he needed money, he needed food, he needed shoes, he needed to replace his worn-out cloak, he needed to pay rent, he needed to travel, 
I don't know if he had to pay life insurance, and I don't know if he had any kind of taxes that he regularly had to take care of. I don't know about all of the expenses that he had. But I know he had to exist, and existence is expensive. <laughs> so you know what he did to meet his needs? He worked. He was not above being a bivocational minister. That's a term we use to describe a preacher of the gospel or a missionary or an evangelist, somebody who is doing the work of the ministry full-time while also supporting themselves while they do that through secular work, we might call them. Paul worked to support himself while preaching and planning a church. Now, it would not have been wrong for him to take money from Christians to fund the work of the ministry, but on this particular occasion, he determined that it would be best for him to work to pay his own way while he planted the church in Corinth. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Verse number 6. Paul asks, Or I only and Barnabas, have we not power to forbear working? Who goeth at a warfare at any time at his own charges? Who planteth a vineyard and eateth not of the fruit thereof? Or who feedeth the flock and eateth not of the milk of the flock? Now he's we're picking up in the middle of a conversation here, but at this point he's basically asking the question, don't I have the right to expect to make a living doing what I do? Isn't it only right that if someone works full-time doing something that they should make a living at it, such as a soldier or a owner of a vineyard or a shepherd of a flock? Verse number 12, If others be partakers of this power over you, are not we rather? Nevertheless, we have not used this power, but suffer all things, lest we should hinder the gospel of Christ. Now Paul here, he's simply making a point to them that while he was with them, he did not take a salary. He worked to support himself while planting the church, and on that particular occasion, he did it because he didn't want to be a hindrance to the ministry of the gospel. He made it very clear that it would be perfectly fine and right and good if the church had paid him. But on this occasion, he elected not to accept that or not to ask for that even. So I ask you a question. Do you think it's fair if a person is called of God to go to the other side of the world, move to a foreign country, learn a different language and a different culture and for the sole purpose of preaching the gospel to them? Do you think it would be reasonable and fair for us as a church to say, praise the Lord, I'm glad God's called you there, let me know what kind of a job you get when you get there? Would that be fair to us to expect them to go there to do a work that God's called them to do, a work of the ministry, preaching the gospel, to devote their life to that, but not support them financially to do it so they can focus? Now, I'm not saying that there aren't times and it's not, it's not good and right at certain times for missionaries to work 
when they're on the field. Some missionaries have to work for visa reasons and to, in order to be in the country. God does it in various different ways, but like Paul said here, there's nothing wrong and there's everything right with the church giving financially to support someone who is preaching the gospel. So that was one way that Paul earned a living, but it wasn't the only way. Paul did not always work two jobs, in part because he was constantly moving around. So he was going from place to place preaching the gospel. Sometimes he'd be in a particular location only for a couple of months. Can you imagine him on his third missionary journey showing up in a town and going to find a job? You know, he goes up to the Chick-fil-A and he turns in his resume and they look through it and they're like, all right, you worked in Thessalonica for three months and you were in Corinth for 18 months and then uh, you were over in Philippi for four months. And is that going to look good, you know? (laughs) So part of it was he was traveling so much that, you know, he couldn't hold down a quote-unquote steady job like we would think of. And thankfully, there were many times when believers sent him gifts of money so that he could focus fully on the ministry. Now, one of Paul's most successful church plants was in the city of Thessalonica. That church became so influential, in fact, that he later wrote that the sound from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to God were to spread abroad so that we have so that we need not to speak anything. That's 1 Thessalonians 1.8. He said, you folks are doing such a good job. Everywhere we go, we go to tell somebody about the gospel, and they're saying, oh yeah, I heard about that from the Thessalonians. It was a very successful church plan. Paul's ministry there was relatively brief, though, and rather tumultuous. Turn over to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. Here's where we read about Paul's initial ministry in Thessalonica. Acts 17, verse 1. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead. And that this Jesus, whom I preach unto you, is Christ. And some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas, and of the devout Greeks a great multitude, and of the chief women not a few. So in the span of just three weeks, a number of people were saved and came together, forming the nucleus of a brand new church. Verse 5, But the Jews which believed not, moved with envy, took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort. Which, by the way, that is my favorite description in all of Scripture right there. If somebody calls you a lewd fellow of the baser sort, that's not a compliment, okay? took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort and gathered a company and set all the city on an uproar and assaulted the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. And when they found them out, they drew Jason and certain brethren under the rulers of the city, crying, These that have turned the world upside down are come hither. Notice how significant of a ministry Paul had in a short period of time. These people accused him of turning the world upside down. Verse 7, whom Jason hath received, and these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, one Jesus. They basically charged them with treason. 
And they troubled the people, verse 8, and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. And when they had taken security of Jason and of the other, they let them go. And the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas by night unto Berea, who coming thither went into the synagogue of the Jews. A very brief, tumultuous ministry he had here. Only, if, if, if we're, unless we're missing something, only about three weeks. Less than a month that he was here. Quite an eventful ministry. But successful. A church was born, a church that became a very, very influential church. We have two letters in our New Testament that were letters Paul wrote to this church. How did Paul afford to live there? How did he afford to do what he did in Acts 17, verses 1 through 10? Turn with me back to Philippians chapter 4, and we will see. Philippians chapter 4, let's go back to verse 14. Notwithstanding, ye have well done that ye did communicate with my affliction. Now ye Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but ye only. For even in, what's that next word? Thessalonica... Ye sent once and again unto my necessity. Thessalonica, we just read about that in Acts 17. During that three-week time period, apparently, he had received a financial gift from the church at Philippi that helped meet his needs. We know he had needs because he's referred to as you sent once and again unto my necessity. He needed that. Listen, the Apostle Paul was not collecting funds so that he could buy his ministry a new jet or so that he could travel around in a Jaguar or whatever his, you know, luxury chariot of choice might have been. He wasn't buying the latest high fashion. He was not spending $2,000 on a pair of vintage Nike sneakers. Yes, there are mega church pastors doing that. No, he had needs like eating and having a place to sleep. And the church at Philippi was one of the churches that gave to meet those needs. Verse 17 now, Philippians chapter 4 Not because I desire a gift, but I desire fruit that may abound to your account. But I have all and abound and am full, I having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you, an odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Now unto God and our Father be glory, and forever, glory forever and ever. Amen. So the church at Philippi gave Paul money. They didn't just write him a note and say, hey, we're praying for you. <laughs> they gave money to support him and encourage him as he was planting the gospel and preaching or planting churches and preaching the gospel. And it was in fact their giving that became a model that Paul would hold up to other churches. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 
This is talking about another time that the Philippians and other churches in the region of Macedonia gave. But 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul is writing to the Corinthian believers, encouraging them to make good on a promise. They had promised to take up a special offering for the needy saints in Jerusalem. A year had passed and they hadn't done it yet. And he's encouraging them, make good on your promise. And in encouraging them, he holds up to them the example of the churches in Macedonia. Verse number 1 of 2 Corinthians 8, Moreover, brethren, we do you to wit of the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, how that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded unto the riches of their liberality. For to their power, I bear record, yea, and beyond their power, they were willing of themselves, praying us with much entreaty, that we would receive the gift and take upon us the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. Now, where, what region was the city of Philippi? Macedonia. In fact, when you go to Acts chapter 16, you have the record of what's known as the Macedonian call. Paul and his missionary team were trying to go to the next place. They, went, they wanted to go here. The Holy Spirit said no. They wanted to go there. The Holy Spirit said no. And then finally, in, a, in one night, Paul had a vision of somebody in Macedonia saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. They went into Macedonia, and the first city that they went to in Macedonia was the city of Philippi. Does anybody know what significant thing happened in Philippi? Somebody said something over here. Anybody know? They were jailed. They went into Philippi, and they had very quickly three converts. The first was a lady named Lydia, a seller of purple. She was leading a women's prayer group down by the river. They went down there, preached the gospel, they were saved. They came back into town and they soon had their second convert. This was a demon-possessed young lady who was following them through the city crying, these men be the servants of the Most High God, hear ye them. They said, well, we don't need that kind of advertisement. And so they turned, they cast the devil out of her and she was then saved later. But that really made her masters mad because they had made a lot of money off of her demonic abilities. And so they drew Paul and Silas to the um, magistrates of the city, accused them of causing all this trouble, and they were thrown in prison. And that was the event where they, at midnight, were singing praises to God. God sent an earthquake, and uh, their shackles fell off. The prison doors were open. And here comes the jailer running in, thinking all the prisoners have escaped. Logical conclusion for most instances. And he's about to kill himself when Paul says, Do thyself no harm, for we are all here. And then he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And Paul said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved in thy house. And so those were the first three converts of the church of Philippi as recorded in Scripture. Where were they at? In Macedonia. And so this church at Philippi was held up as a model to other churches. As Paul's writing the church at Corinth, he's like, Hey, look at what they did in Macedonia. Churches like the church at Philippi, they gave because they heard of your commitment. They said, hey, we can help out too. And they gave sacrificially. They gave generously. They gave out of a heart of love. Look how they gave. Now do it. You said you were going to do it. Now you do the same thing. And it's neat to me as we follow this thread through the scriptures, how that, how that God has said that he would supply all of our needs. But we actually find that that comes as a result of a church that was willing to give 
in order to meet the needs of Paul when he was in Thessalonica so that he could preach the gospel. Now we're talking about the church's role in missions of supporting the missionaries. How do we do that? Let's get down to the nuts and bolts. I think we've established that it is a biblical principle. I think there are three ways that we should support missionaries. First of all, we should support missionaries by sharing with missionaries. And yes, I'm talking about money. By giving them money. You know, I appreciate when a missionary comes and they give their presentation and they say, you know, we're raising support, we're at 33%, and we would really like, you know, you to prayerfully consider supporting us. But more than that, we need your prayers. You know, I appreciate it when they say that. And we'll talk about praying for missionaries in a minute. But let's just be honest. A missionary on deputation needs our money. I wish we could support every single good missionary out there, but we can't. But the ones that God gives us the privilege of partnering with, we need to be faithful in supporting them. We need to do all that we can to share with them. Again, in Philippians chapter 4 here, he says that, that no other church at, at that particular time had communicated with him concerning giving and receiving. And he wasn't talking about, you know, giving a box of chocolates. He's talking about money. They sent once and again to his necessity. But I want you to look at verse number 14 because there's a word here that really puts the biblical perspective on it. He said, moreover, brethren, or excuse me, notwithstanding, ye have well done that ye did communicate with my affliction. You know, when we use the word communicate, we primarily mean talking to someone in some way, verbally, spoken word or written word, right? But the Bible word for communicate here has a much deeper meaning. If you look at our English word, communicate, you see that there is a, a root word there, commune, which means to have in common. And so what he's saying here is that you had in common with me certain things. This same word is used um, in other places. And it, all, and it indicates that they shared what they had. You look at the early church in Acts chapter 2. They said, sold all things and they had all things in common. They, were, they, were, they had a, an idea about their possessions, that they're not my possessions, they're God's possessions. And so if God wants me to use some of these possessions to bless other people, that's fine. We'll share and share alike as needed. We will, we will give everything that we can to support God's people in the work of the ministry. I, I know it sounds bad because of the modern connotation, but it was a form of communism, not like we know it today. Okay, not the kind of where you go in and you make everybody equal by killing them all, communism. Not that kind. But a voluntary sharing amongst God's people. Barnabas was an example of that. He had a piece of land and he sold it and he gave the money to the church to help take care of the believers. And Paul said to the church at Philippi, you communicated with my affliction. You shared with me in the time that I had need. And he, he commends them for that. It was a sacrifice. He's called, he calls it that in verse number 18. It was a sacrifice, acceptable, well-pleasing to God. Because 2 Corinthians chapter 8, we read a moment ago, establishes that Philippi was not a rich church. They were in deep poverty. 
but they still gave. Because poverty does not excuse stinginess. Be generous with what you have, even if what you have is just a little. You remember the story of the widow's mite? Jesus and his disciples are standing at the temple. All the rich men are coming and pouring bags of money into the offering chest. And here comes a little lady discreetly, drops in two pennies which make a farthing. Two mites. Totally insignificant compared to all of the wealth that had been donated that day. But yet Jesus noticed and he made the statement that she had given more than everyone else because they gave out of their abundance, but she and her poverty gave all that she had. Be generous with what you have to share with the missionaries. We're going to be considering in the coming weeks our commitment as individuals and as a church to missions through grace giving and faith promise missions. And I want to encourage you even now to be praying about what does God want you to commit to give to missions over the next 12 months through the ministry of Philadelphia Baptist Church. Some of you are already giving, have been giving for a long time. I want to encourage you to pray about, does God want you to increase that? If so, how much? Some of you may have never gotten in on that. I, mean, I want to encourage you to start, to give above your tithes that go to support the work of the ministry here to missions and make a commitment to God, not based on what your, you think your budget will handle, but based on what you think God wants you to do and that He wants you to trust Him to pl- provide for you. God calls the offering that they gave, the Philippians gave, an odor of a sweet smell and a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. God is pleased when we give financially to further the gospel both at home and abroad. But not only do we support the missionaries by sharing, number two, we support missionaries through supplication because it's not just money that the missionaries need. We tend to let the pendulum swing too far one direction or the other. And we must understand that we can't just write a check and drop it in the offering plate and say, all right, I've done my duty to missions. No, that's only part of it. The Another part of it is that we regularly lift up our missionaries to the God in prayer to encourage them through that regular, sincere prayer for their needs. Paul understood well that prayer was a vital part of his ministry and of the ongoing work of reaching the world with the gospel. And so he repeatedly requested prayer from the believers. In 1 Thessalonians 5.25, Brethren, pray for us, he said. Romans 15 verse 30, Now I beseech you, brethren, for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake and for the love of the Spirit, that you strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. Pray for me, he said. Because there are doors that only God can open. There are opportunities that only God can give. There are obstacles that only God can remove. And we need to pray that God will. 2 Thessalonians 3 and verse 1, he said, Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may have free course and be glorified even as it is with you. Colossians 4, he said, With all praying for us that God would give an open unto us a door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in bonds that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. Philippians 1.22, But with all, pre- prepare me also a lodging, for I trust that through your prayers I shall be given unto you. Prayer is a vital part of the ministry, especially the ministry of missions. And good missionaries understand that the support of prayer is actually more important than the financial support. I want to encourage you to pray for our missionaries. 
Every week in our prayer bulletin, we include some specific prayer requests from recent updates. At any time, if you want a list of all of our missionaries, we'll be happy to give it to you. In the hallway over here outside the kitchen, between the kitchen and the blue room, you see that wall that has all of our missionaries with their picture and their name. Opposite that wall, there's a little uh, holder right there with all of the recent prayer updates. You can go and you can look at those. If you want copies of it, we'll be happy to give that to you. Please pray for our missionaries. Come up with some kind of a system that you can pray consistently for them. Now, we support over 40 missionaries and agencies. may not be feasible to pray for everyone in detail every single day. For some of you, that might be a, a, a feasible. For others, maybe you need to come up with a system where uh, you pray for certain ones on certain days. Get you some 3 by 5 cards and write the missionaries out on cards and maybe go through one or two a day. Do whatever, but pray for the missionaries. They need pennies or pounds if they're British. And prayer. They need it. They need them both. And then the third way that we can support our missionaries, and this is important, striving together with our missionaries. What do I mean by that? Well, Philippians 1.27, Paul said, Only let your conversation be as becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. You know what discourages many missionaries? Is to come home on furlough and visit a church that years before was a thriving, active ministry, preaching the gospel faithfully and had taken them on for support. But now, 7, 10, 15 years later, the missionary comes home and the church is down to just a handful. And on life support, dwindling away, no longer a light, just barely a flickering candle. Or to come home and to report to churches that had taken them on and a church that when they initially supported them, was a rock-solid, Bible-believing, separated, fundamental church. And they come back on furlough and they, they don't even recognize the church anymore. It, it looks like every other average evangelical, compromising, wishy-washy, squishy doctrine church out there. It's not the same church anymore. And that discourages missionaries, if they're good missionaries. One of the ways that we can support our missionaries is by continuing to do right here what we expect them to do over there. How hypocritical is it of us to pay them to go over there to preach the gospel, to win people to Christ, to make disciples, to stand for the truth, and to not compromise with the world, but then not preach the gospel, not stand for the truth, compromise with the world over here. Hypocritical. And so as we continue to strive to do the work of the ministry, we are striving together with them, working at the same time for the same goals, just in a different place. I've often wondered, I don't know, I might do this someday, but I've often wondered, maybe it would be an encouragement to missionaries to send them quarterly updates like we asked them to send us. I don't know, I've never done that. 
But if I did, if we did that as a church, would we have much to write? You know, we think about that. We expect our missionaries to report to us regularly, tell us what the Lord's doing. And, you know, we, we like to see that, oh, this person's been saved and they're doing this outreach ministry and they're involved in this program and God's blessing this way. We expect that of them. But if the roles were reversed, would we be able to do what we expect of them to do? What I'm saying is, by doing our job here at home, not only are we honoring God with our obedience, not only do we keep our hearts in tune with the work that the missionary is doing elsewhere, but we are also a source of encouragement to the missionary as they hear what God is doing among us. Again, I take you back to what Paul said to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 8. He said, I've heard how good you guys are doing. And what a blessing that is. Keep up the good work. So supporting missionaries, yes, it involves financial support, but it involves much more as well. It involves supplication, prayer for them and their ministries. It involves striving together and doing the work that God has called us to do here, holding our end of the line, as it were. Now, Philippians chapter 4, I want to look at one more verse as we close now. Philippians chapter 4, verse 17. Let me draw your attention to what Paul said to the believers there. He said about the gift that they gave. He, he thanked them for it, but he said, Not because I desire a gift, but I desire fruit that may abound to your account. You know, when we are supporting missionaries, and those missionaries lead people to Christ, when they plant churches... When they train nationals to lead the work of God, when they make disciples, and when God's work is furthered over there, then those who supported them share in that eternal reward. Paul called it fruit that would abound to your account. There is a reward for the church that fulfills its role in missions of supplying the missionaries, of sending the missionaries, and supporting the missionaries. May God help Philadelphia Baptist Church in Rutledge, Georgia, to continue to be a missionary-minded church. Heavenly Father, I praise you for the wisdom of your plan and the privilege of being a part of it. And Lord, I pray that we as individuals and our church as a whole would have a burden, a true burden, Lord, not just to support missionaries, but to support the work of missions all over the world. That, Lord, we would have an impact not just here, but all over the place with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.